If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. When we appear to be in turbulent times, it's great to know we can always rely on a giant bowl of Cinnamon Toast Crunch cereal. Yeah! Yeah, yeah baby! Thompson! Have you had that stuff in a while? Oh my goodness. My kid eats it by the bucketful. It's like, are you going to sit in that or eat that? Is there any milk left? Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board. Spinning the Fats Domino. I'm walking. Seems everybody's walking, especially those using the Go Bus recently. Uh, but, you know, everybody's everybody's walking. Everybody's, uh, hey, we we got to bring everybody back together. we got to bring everybody back to the table and uh, see what the new post-COVID-19 world is all about. There you go. Moving forward. Feel free to jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. What is going on? Well, you know, pretty much the same as uh, before. Hearing not too much about uh, the education union uh, uh, negotiations with the Ontario government. I'm sure that is a good thing uh, rather than hearing it in the media. Also, uh, go striking. Uh, We're going to talk about that coming up a little later on because it's an an interesting point when uh, the head of the union said, we're not striking for wages, we're striking so when people retire, those jobs aren't replaced by uh, contract work. Those are actual union members. So the union doesn't shrink in size. And I'm thinking, man, is that that the same sort of situation as what we're dealing with the education workers? Is it the same sort of issue? Uh, So we'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. Also, uh, lots of chatter about masking and, you know, how we feel. There's a survey the other day if we if we were asked to, if it was recommended, would you do it? And of course, the majority would. That's what we did last time. Um, if you're asked to do it, but we're being asked to do it this time, not because there's a deadly disease or a deadly virus or a, uh, you know, a spreading variant or anything like that. It's because our, you know, it's the normal flu that has come along, uh, in a world after two and a half years of masking and immunity is down. So all of a sudden a rise in these sorts of cases, whether it's the typical uh, flu, whether it's the seasonal stuff, whether it's the respiratory illness going around, whether it's still mild forms of COVID-19. Uh, but it's not to protect us, it's to protect the health system. That should be a massive red flag right there. It's about protecting the health system. What does that say about our highly coveted, much sought after, everyone's bragging about and boasting, puffed with the chest out, healthcare system? We have to start listening to our healthcare workers. We have to address this. Uh, and this is a perfect example. The answer is not masking. The answer is focusing on the healthcare system as much as we are on climate change, as much as we are on education contracts, all of that. This is the pressing issue of the day, along with getting food on your table. That's what we should be talking about. Fascinating. We'll go through that over the course of the afternoon. Also, um, kind of been a, a, a lull in the Emergencies Act inquiry. Uh, all the good stuff at the beginning and the end. The middle's kind of mushy. Uh, but here's uh, an interesting report from uh, Karen Rebo from Canadian Press about uh, where we are right now. 
Mario Di Tommaso appeared yesterday before the Public Order Emergency Commission and said he realized after the first weekend of the Freedom Convoy protest in Ottawa late last January that it had turned into an occupation. But his testimony was interrupted and proceedings were stopped when the lawyer questioning him collapsed in a medical emergency. A spokesman for the inquiry said it will not share further details about Gabriel Poliquin's health out of respect for him and his family. Di Tommaso's testimony will be followed today by senior Alberta civil servant Marlon DeGrand regarding protests near the border at Coots, Alberta. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. So focusing more on the border issues than those in uh, Ottawa at this point, whether it be Windsor or whether it be uh, Coots, Alberta, here's what uh, Christia Freeland had to say on the Emergency Act and, uh, and, and how difficult it was to make this decision. I believed at the time and I believe now that it was the right thing to do, that it was necessary for our country. And a hard decision. It was a hard decision to take and it should be a hard decision to take. Um, it is an action that should never be taken lightly and we did not undertake it lightly. Uh, and how often it should be used as we hear the Prime Minister talking about the notwithstanding clause in regard to the provinces. It was a very big deal. Um, I hope and believe it is the kind of thing that happens only once in a generation, if that Fascinating, uh, meaning you other guys better not use it either. Uh, it's funny from what we're hearing right now and at the very beginning of all of this, obviously uh, there was no plan. Uh, they thought they were all going to leave. That obviously didn't happen. And then when they decided to stay, there was no plan B in order to uh, facilitate and remove them. Uh, also, no sharing, uh, or for some reason, all of the intelligence coming from the RCMP and the OPP didn't make it to the Ottawa police chief's uh, desk. So uh, pretty obvious why it happened and how we got to where we are. The decision is, how does, does it meet the threshold of national security? Many have said um, not needed, but uh, helped us clean up the mess when obviously there was lack of leadership and there was no plan. So hopefully, hopefully out of the end of this, uh, there at least will be some sort of national plan if something ever happens uh, like this again, whether it's on a border crossing or whether it's, you know, at Parliament. Uh, Pierre Polyevra, obviously a leader of the Conservative Party, uh, taking heat for supporting them. Here's his position on all of this. I think it's possible to support the overall cause of personal free choice in vaccination and the overall cause of respecting the trucker's ability to, to earn an income while holding individually responsible anyone who behaved badly, broke laws, or blockaded key infrastructure. That was my position before, during, and, and now. And how does this come full circle? Uh, here we are again talking about the possibility of having to mask up again, and again asking people to remove certain freedoms in order to save the greater good. Uh, I think for a pandemic, absolutely. 
when people are doing it because the healthcare system is either, is becoming overwhelmed, that's when they really start asking questions and they really start demanding answers. And I think this, again, is further proof how much uh, concentration is needed on our healthcare system and where we're going moving forward. Uh, and in regard to all of these discussions, especially as we're talking about leadership. Obviously, as we've come through a global pandemic and in the last two and a half years, call it what you want, um, we've seen the advantage of doing things digitally, of having technology, finally uh, people catching up with technology. We've also seen the benefits in healthcare uh, when there's been uh, different ways to see healthcare and such. And, and in some ways, a lot of these um, these methods will continue uh, long after a global pandemic, which is great. But what happens when the simplicity of digital convenience leaves healthcare patients uh, in a situation where they have more information than perhaps they should, or uh, at least uh, without the guidance of a physician helping. In other words, how much information is too much? How do we monitor all of this? Where's the line? Let's bring in Dr. Carrie Bowman, bioethicist and assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Carrie, thanks for your time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, very well. Happy to be here. So uh, technology, it's been great in helping us get through this global pandemic. We've talked about telemedicine, all of this sort of thing. Uh, and, and with apps and whatever, we can monitor our health, monitor our, our, our blood uh, sugar, monitor our, our physical fitness and such. This is about people finding out about information before the doctor has actually delivered it to them. Talk about this scenario here and, and where the line is. Yeah. So, so first of all, I mean, it's not going to surprise anyone when we say that this is going to be the wave of the future. I mean, technology is progressing relatively quickly. Although, you know, having said that, the hospitals have been unbelievably slow to get into electronic charting. It, it's really gone on for a long time, but, but they really are finally getting there. So, and, you know, it, it can be very empowering for people to have full control and full access to their charts and to their files. But here's the thing. Information really has to be reviewed in the context of what it means medically. And I don't just mean the definition of what your illness is, but it's the context of that illness with you. Um, you know, what is the standard of care, which essentially means what are the treatment parameters? What are the treatment options? Uh, what's the prognosis? And, you know, some people are going to be a lot better in terms of fishing around for that online. But to just put it out there without regular support for people, I think, could be very, very problematic because so much of it is context dependent. Having said that, you know, the information is yours and mine. Um, you know, it does surprise some people. The chart itself, um, the physical chart within a hospital is absolutely not your property, assuming it's your chart. Uh, it's the property of the hospital. And all the technology is obviously the property of the hospital. How, but the information within that chart belongs to you. Look, I, I'm also going to say, and I'm a person that's worked in hospitals for 30 years, I, there's chart, and I am used to charts, and I'm well-trained, and I, there are times where I cannot make heads or tails out of what I'm reading. Now, how's that for depressing? But it's true, and, you know, <laughs> and, you know it, it, these charts are going to have to really be organized. There's acronyms everywhere, and, you know, that the acronyms that are sometimes misspelled, um, it's going to be very difficult uh, for patients if we just throw them into this without a lot of preparation. 
Is there a chance that a patient could get the information before the doctor does or before the doctor's had a conversation with the patient, say, for example, a test result? Yeah, well, you know, that will depend on how things are structured. So, you know, I'm imagining in a perfect world that a critical diagnosis that maybe a physician could, could flag something that they'd want an appointment with the patient in advance. But I don't know that. I mean, you know, right now the structure is moved towards if, if, if results surface, meaning from the lab and they're there, that, that you would have access to them. And, you know, the context of this is, is really tough. And here's the thing that really worries me that nobody's talking much about. They're often called patient portals. A portal, we know what a portal is. A portal's an opening in something. How long until they get hacked? And, you know, mm. my bank has told me, no, we're never going to get hacked. We, and we got hacked. I, I'm not going to name that bank, but, you know, I think they all have, actually, right? Yeah. And, and so credit card companies have been hacked. Banks have been hacked. Like, you know, how long? And that information's really, really important stuff. And in some cases, it could be genetic. It may not just be about you. It could be about your children to some extent. I mean, you know, so what are the safeguards in relation to that? Um, You know, so if they create a situation where absolutely everything's available with a click, I think you're going to kind of have a hodgepodge. It's going to be very difficult for people to go through. And it could create a new profession where you have to hire somebody, and I'm not kidding when I say this, to, to wade through it with you. Like someone to do your taxes. <laughs> yeah, um, no, exactly that. Exactly so, that. And, you know, so, there's, uh, a lot of, there's a lot of smart people that could do that, but you'd, I'm sure you'd have to pay for it, you know? Um, so we're seeing the provincial health ministers meeting in British Columbia, and the feds were involved for a for a little bit of it anyway. Uh, all of a sudden, then it became about money. But one of the issues, um, the federal government, if we're going to pay money, we want to see results. We want, you know, whether it's taking credit for it or their idea or whether it's something you need. But one of the issues they said was a database that's right the way across the country. How would that relate to what we're talking about here? Uh, obviously, something like that is something that is needed. Is is it on the top of the list? How much? How would that help the system, having a database like that across the country? Yeah, you know, a database across the country would help in a lot of ways because, you know, it, it, there's the micro and the macro level. So you've got public health, and we all know that story after what we've just been through over the last couple of years. But you've also got, you know, access. You know, you, you can show up for a doctor's appointment between B.C. or Manitoba or something, and, you know, the chart is absolutely never available. But again, it would have to be safe. Um, yeah. So a portal is different in that you would have full access to everything right. within your file or almost everything. But, you know, we've really fallen behind. And you need to do medicine well, epidemiology, you know, the, the, the study of the patterns of disease and illness within a, or, you know, health patterns and illness patterns within a society. You need big data and big data I, I think we all know what big data means you know you need the big picture so that would be very very helpful but boy you know what worries me is we tend to just barrel along with technology and and people have to figure it out as they go uh, you know um and you know some people I, I don't want to be really ageist by saying you know anyone over a certain age is not going to be able to do anything on a computer yeah. that's not really true but it might be true for some people. And there's some people of all ages that either don't know or don't want to yeah. know. They're just not that interested in figuring out computer language. All right. Uh, really quick, we only got a few seconds left, but I can't yeah. let you go, doctor, without uh, getting your opinion. We're talking about masking again and where we are. Your thoughts? 
Look, if it's evidence-based, we need to do it. Um, I, I, I've been very concerned about the situation for children in this last week, and I'm, I'm reading the evidence. And if we can build a strong argument that we need to do it to protect the children, I say we do it. Dr. Kerry Bowman with us, bioethicist and assistant professor, Department of Family and Community Medicine, University of Toronto. Thank you, sir, as always. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We are one of the few transit agencies that are are legislated provincially, so wages have never been an issue. We're legislated under Bill 124, so we have a 1% cap on all our compensation, so it's never been about wages. As Rob Cormier, uh, president of Local 1587, talking to him yesterday about GoBus and them being out and and similarities between them and the teachers and such. Um, here's another clip of uh, of Rob Cormier, f- president of 1587, and and basically talking about uh, it's not wage, it's other issues that are uh, of concern of the union. Here he is. I can let you know that on April the 7th, we started our negotiations with Metrolinx. Um, you know, for seven months, we were back and forth with uh, proposals, what the union wanted, what the company was looking for. Our number one issue, our number one item, actually, on since day one has been uh, better language for contracting out. Um, that's been most of the press conferences. The stuff you've heard is in relation to what that means. Um, we do have language in our collective agreement that protects our, our workers that are currently on the job, but it doesn't really give protections to the job itself. What we've seen over the years is when people retire or leave the company for whatever reason, some of those jobs, largely in maintenance, um, contractors are brought in to do the work. And we're just looking for, that's been our biggest problem and, and our biggest ask since the negotiations started. I can completely understand uh, people supporting the education support workers and the EAs and everything they do and, and the backbone of the school and such and, and lower paid, let's be serious, and deserve more. Um, and I can see how the, you know, we end up with the negotiations we, uh, where we are and, and, and people want to help and, and do more for those that are asking for more. This, however, is an ask that it's not about protecting the worker. It's about protecting the job, which means after a person retires, that job is replaced with another union member as opposed to someone else. So that's really not protecting the worker. It's protecting the job. It's keeping the membership at 100 employees if one decides to leave and then it becomes 99 who replaces the employee. So I'm not sure people have the same sort of uh, uh, sympathy for or, or feeling. Uh, clearly, with the 1% raise, they're fine with that uh, over the course of, of this situation. And obviously now that's all coming up for renewal. But uh, I'm not sure if we view this the same way we would an education assistance uh, contract negotiation. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing very well, thank you, Scott. Your thoughts on this? Is this a different ask, uh, all being under the same union umbrella? But I think people were sympathetic if, you know, education <laughs> workers that help their kids want a, a boost in pay as opposed to protecting a job, not necessarily the worker. Well, that's my view. Um, I'll, I'll explain why. I've been teaching strategy for 30-odd years, and uh, one of the 
issues that comes up. There's many issues that come up in strategy. Strategy is about the the management of a, of a company. It could be Loblaws. It could be the Bank of Montreal. It could be Air Canada. It could be any organization. And and then you have to manage all the bits and pieces. You know, you have to manage the operations and the marketing department and the and the HR department and all the bits and pieces, the value chain, the org chart comprise the totality of the company. And it's always been, I've always understood in all my studies that it's always been management prerogative. Uh, it's in the collective agreement where I work uh, and I am unionized uh, that things like outsourcing is a management prerogative. Um and, um, uh, you know, if we need extra part-time people to teach, they just go and hire them, whether they I like it or not. I'm not talking about laying existing people off. We're not talking about that. We're talking in this instance, yeah. uh, somebody retires, yeah. uh, somebody resigns, somebody passes away tragically because of an illness. Now there's a vacancy. There's no, um, uh, to my knowledge, I, I've never, I'm not aware of that. So anyways. What, what I'm aware of or not is not the issue. I decided to do some research because I love doing research. So I went and looked up the uh, the uh, mandate letter from the Ministry of Transportation Ontario, Minister Caroline Mulroney, apparently, in the mandate letter that went to the board, the chairman, chairperson of the board of directors of Metrolink. So I'm not going to read you the mandate letter. It's seven pages long, but there was this one section in there. Anybody can Google this, by the way. It's section seven, ensuring safety. And it says, um, working with the ministry, that's the Ministry of Transportation, and Transport Canada on an inspection framework for the Metrolink's transit infrastructure. And then the other bullet that's critical, continuing to work with the ministry uh, uh, for the planning uh, and changes to strengthen rail safety. Nowhere did it say that the union was responsible for rail safety or that it had co-responsibility. It's very clear from this mandate letter. It's between Metrolink and Ministry of Transportation and and tangentially Transport Canada. So I thought that this was really, really fascinating. So then I went to the Metrolink annual report, the latest annual report. Anybody can Google this. Just Google it, Metrolink annual report 2021-2022. And go to page 17, everybody. And it says Metrolink works with the Canadian Standards Association to develop the Canadian method for risk evaluation and assessment for railroad systems. The CMREA introduces best practices, uh, widely developed and implemented in Europe for making any changes to a railroad uh, a railway system. And then they go on and talk about the Standards Council and how railroad safety is the mandate of the Metrolink. So again, what I'm suggesting here, uh, Scott, is it's very clear that that um, the management of Metrolink, which includes safety and hiring, is is not the mandate. It's not within the mandate of of the uh, of the union, and and so this is not about the as you said the collective bargaining. I'm very familiar with collective bargaining. You know, when we bargain collectively, it's because you know we want more money. Or we want more benefits, or we want an enhanced dental plan, or 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 something like that, you know. Or just how about good old fashioned wages? Um, but um, it, it's uh, it's most unusual, I think, to to try to uh, to suggest that they uh, that they uh, that this is uh, uh, beyond the the the, the authority 
of Metrolinx uh, to to outsource. Uh, one final point, he did suggest in that interview, I listened to your interview of the yesterday, uh, suggesting or inferring that there were some kind of safety issues with these mm. outsourced mechanics. And, uh, you know, the trades are all very, very heavily regulated in Canada. And uh, they just don't, you know, they just don't wander in off the street and start working on aircraft engines or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, heavy equipment or, or trains and that sort of thing. And so if they're, I don't know the regulatory agency for mechanics. I'm talking for the training and safety of mechanics. I'm sure there is one. But again, if there's any evidence of any wrongdoing or malfeasance, surely uh, the union should be bringing it forward to the Ministry of Transportation that is responsible has the ultimate legislative and regulatory authority for the safety of railroad systems, including transit systems in Ontario. Thank you for clearing that up. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, uh, in regard to uh, GoBus transit strike and reasons for it. Ian, as always, thanks so much. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Yesterday, the other day, uh, U.S. midterm. Uh, <laughs> you know, the one thing you know, you, you let, you know, the one thing you got to give the U.S. credit for, they know how to do an election, or, or maybe not. In the sense that it just... It just goes on and on and on. It starts uh, years in advance, and and then here we are. And 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 then when they're over, they just don't seem to want to end. Uh, the U.S. midterm uh, drama uh, sort of coming to an end. Uh, not as bad for uh, the Democrats, uh, and uh, certainly away from the Republicans. The Donald Trump factor doesn't seem to have had as much influence as one thought. Where are we after the U.S. midterms? Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, emeritus professor of political science, Carleton University. He's here now elliot as always thanks for the time i hope you're well uh good to be with you so what's your post-mortem here uh elliot i mean i know not everything's over yet there's still things the outstanding issues here but what are you what are your thoughts of where we where we are right now yes we're not ready for a post-mortem because this election is by no means over that's but, true uh, we, we we have kind of an interim report <laughs> uh, my interim report would really go back to um because of where we are today goes back to the last electoral cycle in 2020. The Democrats at that point had a nice bulge in the House, and they thought, we're going to increase the number of representatives in the House by another 13, 15, 18, maybe 20, and we're going to take over at least seven state governments, uh, which are all Republican-held, and they are the ones who set the redistricting and the gerrymandering potential that goes with it. The Democrats lost all of that, and they ended up with a mere five vote cushion in the House, and as you know, 50-50 in the Senate. And as a reminder, the entire House of Representatives is up for election uh, every two years, 435 seats, all of them, and a third of the Senate. That's uh, that's what we're talking about. The five, or, by being reduced to only a five-vote uh, majority in the House and 50-50 in the Senate, the Democrats got a lot done anyway, a major uh, uh, a surprising amount of uh, legislation got through in all kinds of areas, but uh, now we're in a situation where what was supposed to be a Republican wave or a tsunami, and there were, you know, President Obama lost 62 seats at this <laughs> in the House yeah, at the same yeah. stage. No, the Republicans are barely going to take the House, it looks like, at, uh, right now, and we are heading toward apparently a 50 50 Senate. We'll have to see. There's three races that will determine that. 
But the main takeaway is, uh, as you pointed out, the Americans know how to run an election, and that's what was proved this time. This election went smoothly. Uh, all the threats of violence that were there was certainly possible, didn't happen. The voting is going to be heavily scrutinized, <laughs> for sure, and that'll make it slow, so we don't have the results for a while, but it's worth it. Uh, democracy seems to have come through its stress test pretty well so far. So a win for the Democrats here is hanging on and stopping that, that big wave from the Republicans that was predicted. How does that reflect on the Donald Trump factor? Is that the Donald Trump factor that petered out here? Yes, well, that was certainly one of the major stories coming so far out of this election is that Donald Trump personally imposed his will on the Republican Party. There is no Republican Party, actually. It's, it's a mega party, Make America Great Party. Uh, he controls uh, the, the affection and, and also the levers of power up and down throughout that party. It looked like and he imposed a, a number of candidates saying, we want this one nominated in the Republican primary. Uh, my guy, my woman, my, my candidate is going to win and his candidate over and over lost. Uh, and they lost not only where we could see them at the federal level very visibly, and at some of the state levels, but at the attorney general's level, uh, the attempt was made to put into place people who were overseeing the election, the governors and the attorneys general, and then, uh, of course, at the federal level. And there was a big failure there. Meanwhile, Ron DeSantis had a major victory in Florida, the Republican rising star. So this morning's takeaways are in places like the Wall Street Journal, a very influential place. Donald Trump is a loser. We can't afford to stay with a loser. Uh, so are we at the point, and we've talked about this a lot uh, over the course of, of all of this, is uh, as a result of no wave, is, uh, is the Republican Party now ready to move on? And again, as you mentioned, the big win for DeSantis in Florida. We have uh, an immediate way to test that. The, uh, it's got the announcement that Donald Trump was about to make, that he is putting himself forward as the candidate for the Republican nomination for president was going to happen next week. Now we'll have to see if he's going to go ahead with it. Apparently he was talked out of doing that before the midterms. Now, you know, the midterms are over. He's going to have this great red tsunami, all the successes behind him. He doesn't have that now. So keep an eye on that, whether he now says, yes, I still will run, in which case would the Republican Party actually go through an internal primary fight would DeSantis actually take on the former president who still commands the loyalty of so much of the party? That's going to be the big uh, thing to watch next week. Uh, it, 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 what happens in these untold races still, these these unfinished races? Yes. Is that really just letting him peter out, or does he honestly, if, if something falls in his favor, it could change everything for him? Well, you and I have been talking about this, I think, for at least four years now, will, yeah. will, will anything ever scratch Teflon Don? And so far the answer has been nothing's touched him, absolutely nothing. The Me Too movement and mm. uh, all the other, you know, he's impeached twice, uh, not convicted, but uh, articles of impeachment. There's, so far he's not been touchable. We'll have to see if being tagged as a loser will finally be what makes it happen. Uh, clearly the abortion issue is not going to affect him. Herschel Walker's doing... Um, very well in Georgia, uh, into a runoff. In terms of the, who's going to dominate in, in the future, the 
very narrow victory for the Republicans, which is likely in the House, does give them all the subpoena power, all the all the committee chairs. They can make uh, Joe Biden's life a, a real misery going forward and stymie all of his all of his uh, legislative agenda. But uh, we aren't sure that every Republican will go along with that, since America has clearly indicated in this election they're tired of the um, the bombast and the drama. What they want now is, you know, they want people who will govern. Um, that's the, one of the takeaways you can make from this, that centrist, party centrist, people who went and the Democrats finally, finally got their act together to say, we actually have accomplishments that have helped you. They were able to demonstrate that apparently in the electoral process. I've been looking for it for the last two years. Yeah. <laughs> so that people were saying, oh, what's he done for us? And, I, you know, there was a lot, but it, the Democrats were very poor at communicating. They got better at it. So it's still a very divided country, but it's not one that at the moment is teetering on the brink of violence as a result of an election, and that's good news. Yeah, it seems to be simmering down a bit, just a bit. Uh, Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Always fun, Elliot. Thanks for the time. Be well. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Always good to talk to you, Scott. Obviously, with Christmas and such, people want to travel. Then going into January and February, and 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 all, and we know what it's been like in the last couple of years. Now, obviously, inflation is coming into play, and uh, there's a recent survey from uh, Ipsos uh, talking about what our travel habits are. And yes, they are still uh, those that you know want the too expensive inflation, uh, whether it's that or COVID, still concerned about it. There's still a lot of people that uh, want to travel to get the uh, sort of uh, overview of all of this. Gregory Jack is with us, Vice President, Public Affairs Canada, Ipsos Public Affairs, and with us now. Greg, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good. How are you, Scott? I'm doing pretty good. So still a lot of us wanting to travel, uh, certainly a segment that aren't ready yet, but uh, are we going to see still a mad rush this holiday season, or do you think things are going to taper off a bit? I, I, you know, I think Canadians do want to travel, like you said, but I think this travel season is going to be a bit of a split between those who are feeling ready and, and those who aren't for a variety of reasons, whether those reasons are COVID or expenses, some people are simply going to stay home. But we do see a difference between willingness to travel within Canada and willingness to travel abroad. Let's talk about that. Give us some numbers here and, and what's the difference between the two and maybe even in you know the past year or so, how these have changed. Well, within Canada, we've got most Canadians who are pretty comfortable, um, 77% or, you know, close to, uh, you know, 8 and 10 who are willing to travel within Canada. And that's actually a little bit higher in Atlantic Canada, a little bit lower in Quebec. Um, but when you ask people about traveling abroad, uh, that number drops to 55%. So hmm. almost a little bit more than half who are, who are willing to travel abroad. And, and the reasons for that vary, as I say, between worries about COVID and the expense of traveling abroad these days and, and increased prices on everything from food to uh, plane tickets and hotel rooms. So definitely Canadians are, are looking to travel within Canada. I think they'll be a little more hard pressed to, uh, to leave the border this holiday season. Uh, do you think that will uh, be reflected in, you know, what we're seeing at airports and such? Do you think that will be, obviously it's a question you can answer, but it, will there be enough uh, maybe drop in demand that we won't see the mad dashes that we always seem to? Well, it's really hard to say, as you say, based on the polling numbers, but I can tell you that the the <clears throat> questions about airports, chaotic airports, and that accounted for uh, the reason for people didn't want to travel 
uh, was about 50%. So that was a concern, but it wasn't the top concern. The, the top concern was, as I said, high prices and, uh, and fears about COVID and uh, related travel restrictions. There's also a little bit of worry um, around, you know, political instability in some countries. And I think that might be reflected in what's happening in Europe. Um, and finally, <clears throat> you know, some people just feel that it's not practical or uh, easy these days to travel, but that's only two in 10. So we've I seen very busy airports, but um, I don't know whether or not people's reluctance to travel is going to have any effect on that. Uh, does it matter of the destination? You said, obviously, uh, domestic travel within Canada. What about, does it matter if you're going to the States as opposed to over to Europe or overseas or such? What about the U.S.? How are we feeling? Well, we didn't ask about the U.S. specifically, but I, I think that people would be more comfortable just based on my knowledge of this, uh, traveling to the U.S. than they might be feeling, you know, traveling to, to Europe. Um, when we say domestic travel for some people, that that does feel a little bit like the States. Like the U.S., it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, as you move forward with this, are, are, are more of us anxious to travel? Is this growing with every year compared to what you've seen over the last couple of years? Obviously, there are times that we couldn't travel, but it seemed as soon as they opened up the floodgates that people just went nuts. Oh, for sure. I, I think that our numbers over the last couple of years show that people were, were anxious to get out there. And things really did kind of open up around, uh, around the spring this year. We started to feel like we could travel again. Of course, that's when inflation really started to rear its ugly head as well. And so there is definitely pent-up demand for a lot of Canadians to, to get out and travel more. Um, interestingly enough, the um, young people are more willing to travel uh, abroad um, than, than older people, but uh, they're less willing to, to meet close friends and family um, over Christmas. And so I think that wow. part of that, part of that might, might be explained by the fact that um, you know the boomers, the, the older folks, just want to get out there and enjoy travel while they can uh, because they realize that, you know, they might not have, have as many chances to do it as they used to. Right. Be. And and we had this whole period where, like you say, you couldn't travel. And that was kind of unprecedented for, for all Canadians, especially, uh, especially in the last couple of years. Do you find as time moves on and inflation kicks in, because, you know, everybody wanted to get out, everybody wanted to travel, everybody wanted to help hospitality, and then you get out there and you realize, ooh-wee, things are getting real expensive. So do you find that COVID is less of an issue and more expenses inflation now? I think it's probably split down the middle, although inflation mm -hmm. and cost of living are definitely the number one issues on people's minds today. Um, there, There is worry about health care. There's always worry about health care. But... The, the concern around inflation is definitely real. At the same time, there is a segment of the population who might be vulnerable or, uh, you know, who might be observing what we see as an increase in cases right now, in addition to an increased flu season. Uh, that might explain some of the reluctance to go abroad. Because if you remember when COVID started, if you were abroad, you, you were you were kind of stuck if you yeah. were back. Uh, it feels safer to travel within Canada. But, but certainly the... Um, Certainly, the, the the concern over the cost of things is really driving a lot of people. And interestingly enough, it's the older folks, the baby boomers, the ones who want to get out and travel abroad more, uh, who are more worried about the cost as well. Perhaps because hmm. some of them are on fixed incomes. I don't know. Gregory Jack, Vice President, Public Affairs, Ipsos Public Affairs Canada, talking about inflation and the travel season, how the two are interwound. Greg, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Have a great afternoon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I think it's possible to support the overall cause of personal free choice in vaccination and the overall cause of respecting the trucker's ability to, to earn an income while holding individually responsible 
anyone who behaved badly, broke laws, or blockaded key infrastructure. That was my position before, during, and, and now. That was Pierre Polyevra, a conservative leader, a conservative leader talking to the media, which is something he's rarely done. And, uh, and, and many are talking about that. So when the opportunity comes, uh, the Freedom Convoy is the issue he was uh, addressing there as we are in the midst of the Emergencies Act inquiry. All right. To talk about all of this, let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. And with us now, Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, I'm always doing well, Scott, when I'm talking to you and the people of Hamilton. How's that for pandering today? I feel exactly the same thing, uh, the same way about you. Absolutely, Tim. Um, so uh, your thoughts on the strategy of Pierre Polyevra, it seems to be he's uh, avoiding the media. At least that's the narrative we're getting. Um, he, he's not certainly in everybody's face uh, uh, the way that, uh, you know, perhaps during a, a campaign or that sort of thing. Your thoughts on his strategy and his approach to the mainstream media? Uh, I'm sort of a mixed views on it. So I, 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 like you, I guess, am associated with or directly involved in the mainstream media. So I think any leader should make the time to talk to us and to Parliament Hill reporters just because that is a good proving ground for them. However, if I take my mainstream media associated hat off, I don't think most Canadians give a damn at this point. Uh, I don't think they're overly fussed that Polyev is doing what he's doing. He's taken a more direct approach to communicating with people. The downside of that, of course, is there's no filter to uh, ask and, and probe him challenges. I don't think it's hurting him politically. Um, at a certain point, it may, but I think right now he is taking some delight, Scott, and irritating, particularly the federal parliamentary press gallery, by demonstrating from his behavior that they're not as important to him as he as they would like themselves to be. How does the media respond to that? Yeah, that's a, so Polyev's playing a bit of a game with them. You, you can't look too self-interested and self-absorbed about it all, and that's a bit of a challenge. Look, the, 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 my friends in, for, who work for, you know, the CBC, CTV, Global Mail, Toronto Star, they're all good people, uh, and they're trying to do their jobs. But they, you know, if they whine too much and complain too much, they fall into the Polyev trap, which is to say, yeah. look, just the self-interested media. And things have changed a little bit. And Stephen Harper, if you remember, initially wasn't fond of, of doing things with the mainstream media. But, but 15 years ago, when he was prime minister in 2006, when he first got elected, it was more important to do that because they had the power of aggregation. What Polyev has demonstrated, at least through his leadership race, is he can get the message out through his YouTube channel and elsewhere without the aggregation, and in his case, aggravation factor that he sees in the mainstream media. It seems that um, uh, it, it's making a point that um, if they, if he does not come out and do the traditional uh, things that, that politicians are supposed to do, that they're making a point of highlighting that as if he is hiding something. Is he necessarily yeah. hiding something by not addressing them? Again, I guess it depends on where the audience is gathering, right? Um, I think we learned through Polyev's leadership campaign, he found an audience that is happily off the mainstream. Uh, that may present problems for him later on, 
Certainly, he took a lot of criticism this week for hiring a communications director for the Conservative Party who cheerleaded the convoy and put out her own videos around all of that, but he's not backing down on that. Um, look, I think over time, uh, he's going to have to improve the relationship with the press because there's still enough Canadians who vote and pay attention to what the mainstream media says that they can influence the outcome of an election. But this is a classic game in academic terms. They call it agenda setting. Polyev's trying to set the agenda forcefully about the terms he's prepared to play on, and the media are pushing back. We'll see who in the end wins. Probably won't know that until the election. Uh, and then I'm guessing we'll make it look like, well, I don't understand what the problem is. I'm not the prime minister. What, 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 what do you, ask me a question. I'll give you the answer. He'll, I'm sure he'll downplay it. Um, what about the image of being the convoy supporter? How does he, uh, we remember the early stages of this and, yeah. and other conservative members. How does he, with what he just said and with the clip we played, does that address this? Does he need to further explain no. himself on that? Yeah, he's going to have to. Look, so much is going to depend on what the, you know, Justice Rouleau, the head of this inquiry, finds uh, and what more we hear about it. I don't think he necessarily wants Canadians to see him associated with the cavalcade of characters that spoke on behalf of what the convoy last week. Uh, though some think they did fine. I have a different view. Um, he, he's still not free and clear of that, and certainly he's going to be presented as the main cheerleader of the convoy by the Liberals and the New Democrats and other opponents when uh, when more uh, forceful political campaigning starts to happen. How should the media handle the fact that he's not necessarily making himself available? Does the media learn from this? Is there anything to be learned? I, I think they just you know, got to try to tell stories without getting called. If if it's constantly a game of Pierre Polyev not being available, and that's all they write about, they look like they're whiny. They have yeah. to find ways to tell stories about the Conservative Party and its leader without the access. He's uh, you know without access to him. And what may happen over time is Polyev, as Stephen Harper found, is like, no, you know what? I need to be in these stories because they're, they're going in the wrong direction. It used to drive Stephen Harper batty the number of stories that would come out from unnamed sources and others talking about the, the, the plights and challenges of the Conservative Party. And he began, he went through periods of engaging and not engaging with the media. I think Polyev may go to that place if he doesn't like the descriptions uh, of the mainstream media and isn't able to counteract a narrative that he sees uh, evolving that isn't favorable to him uh, through his other channels. Could it be that he just doesn't want to give them bait, but then again, oh, yeah. if you don't speak, they, they write the narrative for you? Yeah, I mean, well, what political leader hasn't been like that, right? I mean, they all, they're all they all very cautious of, of that at a certain point. And yeah, of course, he doesn't want to give them bait, but I think it's more than that. I think... You know, he is trying to set the, the, the channel. And, and he's also, don't forget, part of his, his says his appeal to the Canadian public is, I'm for you, I'm not them. And in the last decade, as we know, Scott, lots of opinion polls have shown, and we've seen this in the U.S. too, and we saw some of the success of Trump, though thankfully he's unwinding a little bit based on the midterms, uh, of, you know, setting up these straw people, straw men around, oh, how bad are the media, and they're not in it for you. And Baliev's still playing that game, and will probably yeah. play that game as long as he thinks there's an advantage in it.
Tim Powers with us, Chairman Suma Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. You know, I've only interviewed him once, and it wasn't the easiest interview. And I thought it could have been easier, um, but I don't know. What's he's your response to that? He's a good communicator. You're right, Scott. He's a good communicator, yeah. but he's, you know, yeah. this is part of a very deliberate strategy to have the us versus them pitting that uh, that he wants. And, and we were, he was talking about inflation. I know I'm running over here. We were, he was talking about inflation. We were, and, and I said, well, isn't inflation everywhere? I'm just playing the devil's advocate. And he goes, not Switzerland. And I'm thinking, oh, man, is, is, is that where we want to go? Uh, yeah, you know, exactly. that's the card we're playing here? Oh, man. Uh, but anyway, uh, always fascinating, and it will be. And thank you, as always, Tim, for your uh, contribution. Very much appreciated. Be well. All right, buddy. Talk to you later. Bye. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It's quiet because there's no rhetoric about a strike or negotiations or what have you, which is the way the negotiations were between the education support workers and, um, and, and the provincial government last week and ended up in a a walkout and such and you got to think because both played their hands of legislation and a strike in the first day or so of all of this and now it's radio silence which is probably a good thing it means they're off negotiating somewhere uh in private and not necessarily in public however when it comes to giving you an update on what's going on there may not be a lot to tell but we'll find out alan hale is with us ontario legislature reporter for queen's park today and with us now alan thanks for the time i hope you're doing well Oh, yeah, thanks for having me on. So even when this was uh, strike was over, there was sort of arguments about, well, wait a sec, they should, the legislature should be called right away, called back right away, and let's deal with it, blah, blah, blah. And then finally silence came over everybody, and, and I guess that's <laughs> a good thing. Is, I mean, does this mean that they're heads down and they're negotiating? I would think so. I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, this, this, pro, this whole um, negotiations have for months been carried out in the public eye which is usually a big no-no for labor negotiations usually uh they often call it negotiating in the media which uh, is usually very very frowned upon it's all very very secretive most of the time but not this not this time it has been a play-by-play pretty much since uh june i believe and honestly, it, it off at times it seemed like a slow motion like <laughs> train wreck. Mm, uh, we just yeah. that eventually crashed. Uh, la- I guess last week, and now, yep, we've had radio silence, and uh, it's like a radio silence that the union, at least, is very keen on actually like enforcing. They put out a, a statement today saying that um, the press conferences that uh, Premier Doug Ford has had for uh, most most of this week, which is kind of a big uh, change of pace for him. It should stop and he should stop mentioning what's going on at the, um, at these negotiations. And the, uh, they have a mediator who is also saying the same thing and apparently telling the premier that he'll have his neck if uh, he keeps yeah. talking about what the uh, deals are. So yeah, it sounds like things are quieting down. They're actually at the negotiating table and hopefully we'll get a, a deal before not too long. So any, uh, have you heard anything coming out from behind closed doors of what is going on? We understand that the provincial government has upped their offer and that they want to concentrate on the, the, the employees on the lower end of the union and such. 
uh, I believe the union responded with, we, we, you know, we're not into a, into a two-tier deal. It's the same for everybody uh, right across the board. Do we have anything more to add to any of that? Is that pretty much where the information stopped think, coming out? Unfortunately, that is kind of where we're at. I think it's worth sort of unpacking what what they're doing with this whole, like, trying to focus on the lower um, the lower uh, er- earning uh, education workers because throughout these entire like negotiations in the media, the the QP has argued that these are like the, the lowest paid people in the um, in the education system. That's many of them are using uh, food banks, and that's it's been the yeah. biggest criticism. And the government, in all of that, the offers we've seen come public has always uh, had this sort of the split offer where they give people who are making lower than like $43,000 a year, a bigger Mm -hmm. increase than the people who make above that. Um, And like, as you mentioned, QP is not, is not in favor of that. They want like a right, a flat right across the board increase of like $3 and 25 cents an hour, which what they did, that was their original position. But I think what the government is more concerned about here is that they want to send a message to the other education unions, the, right. the teachers more specifically, that even if they, they're trying to lay the groundwork here, that if they do give the education workers a raise, like a significant raise, which seems like that's the way things are going, that they cannot accept, they cannot right. expect the same thing. And that has kind of been their entire justification for playing hardball with the union is that if they give them a big raise like they're asking for which some of these people might really really need mm-hmm. uh that they're gonna have to give it to everybody it sets the precedence, yeah that is what i don't like, what i don't they're trying to make sure that doesn't happen what i don't understand and i've asked the union reps about this is you know how can you have an education assistant who helps the teacher who helps special needs kids and I mean, you know, more like I'm sure they need a diploma or some sort of special training to be able to do that. How can you put them in the same category as, say, a maintenance staff who may not need that education? So it seems odd that, um, you know, it seems the education assistant should be in with the teachers and not necessarily with, you know, the support workers. And, yeah. and, and it seems odd that, yeah, that, that way you have this wide range of skill that really isn't similar. Yeah, it is an interesting point. I'm sure there's some interesting like union history going on there because yeah. it does seem like it's the a no- I think it's a numbers like thing. a catch-all sort of exactly. Group, aren't they? Yeah, and and again, it's you know where the representation is, where the where the offices are, they can represent. But yeah, it's it's something really odd that an education worker, or sorry, education assistant, is sort of grouped into this category. All right, we're out of time. Alan Hale with us, Ontario legislative reporter for Queens Park today. Alan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. All right, thank you so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It was a very big deal. Um, I hope and believe it is the kind of thing that happens only once in a generation, if that. So once we've done it, I don't think anybody else should be doing it. That's Christy Freeland, uh, Deputy Prime Minister. Uh, Emergency Act inquiry is continuing. The shift focus, the focus rather, has shifted to obviously the borders, Coots Paradise, or Coots Paradise, Coots Alberta, Windsor, Ontario, and such. Uh, Let's bring in Phil Gursky, President Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow at the University of Ottawa's National Security Program, and former analyst with CSIS and here now. Phil, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. 
I am. Well, I like Coots Paradise better, uh, Scott. Yeah, really. We have a great place around here called Coots Paradise. So everybody locally will know exactly what we mean. But no no convoy there or, or disruption, thank goodness. All right, so we remember at the very beginning of this, and it was pretty dramatic in, in the testimony of the former police chief of Ottawa and such, uh, and we learned that you know that we thought it was going to come and go. Uh, there really wasn't a plan B if it stayed, and there was some uh, problems with intelligence getting to where it needed to be and the, poli- and the people it needed to be. And that's sort of the narrative that this has taken. Are we learning anything more, anything different as we uh, broaden this and go out to the other borders and and such, or the borders, and and how that was uh, all handled? Where is it now? How how does that change the discussion? I don't think it changes the discussion at all, Scott. I think we're getting more of the same same, um, difficulties in sharing information and sharing intelligence. The same uh, discussion about maybe jurisdiction between, you know, the RCMP as the federal police force, local police forces. Uh, it, it's just going to show that I think, uh, you know, the three main sites, which were Ottawa, Windsor and Coots, Alberta, appear to have been uh, handled with difficulty. And that led to uh, inaction in some cases. And this is what the government seems to be using to justify the Emergencies Act, which I'm still not seeing anything to date. Now it could change. We have a few weeks left, I believe. But nothing today uh, suggests to me that there's any authorization or need for such a draconian piece of legislation to have been used back in February. And and they were saying that uh, the the Windsor border was actually open before the Emergency Act was declared. So and I, and I believe I've said this to you before, but is this more about it was because many have said it wasn't needed, but it was a good uh, tool to have in some form of, of another. Does that mean that in lack of a plan or because there was lack of a plan, because there was a lack of leadership, this really helped us to centralize and mobilize, but not necessarily meeting the bar of a threat to national security well that's a really interesting way of putting it uh if if that's the case it's a little bit worrisome that an inability to plan things properly an inability to allocate resources well leads you to use a piece of legislation which should only be taken out of your back pocket in the most dire of circumstances so does that mean that in the future that anytime we're faced with something even remotely analogous where things seem to be going off the rails that we bring this act down even though again it only should be used when there's a, a real very imminent use of violence that you know that that demands it i hope that's not the case i i I hope that if there's a lesson to be learned from this inquiry is that we don't use this legislation uh willy-nilly that there has to be absolutely primordial intelligence or information that says if we don't use this people are going to die and that was certainly not the case even in coups where they found the weapons i you know i'll I'll make a slight exception for coups because they did find weapons um whether weapons were intended to be used that's a whole other issue i don't have access to the intelligence but I'm hoping we don't use this as an easy excuse to justify few future decisions to to invoke the Emergencies Act. Um, and I've suggested this before, simply because there seem to be these different various police services and nobody in one central command. So the Emergencies Act will give us some sort of organization, some sort of central uh, uh, authority, and that will override what the Ottawa police chief has done. Because that's really what I'm seeing, is that it was brought in because there was no plan things were falling apart uh it was obviously after three weeks getting way out of hand and something needed to be done this was brought in to bring everybody under one umbrella and get everybody marching in the same direction due to lack of a plan and leadership is that does that is that accurate in any way is there any viability or any accuracy there it's hard to tell scott what the government was thinking at the time i would say that if you know if we're having a tough time 
coordinating law enforcement agencies. And let's face it, here in Canada, we do have the three or actually four levels of, of law enforcement. You have municipal, you have provincial in Ontario and Quebec, you have federal, and then you have Indigenous policing as well. So right from the get-go, it's problematic. And, and you know, to use a bit of a tangential example, when Michael Zahapi Bo attacked Parliament back in 2014, he left Ottawa police jurisdiction at the Cenotaph into RCP jurisdiction on the hill, into into parliamentary jurisdiction when you actually cross the the uh, the, the doors at, at the um at the center block. To me, what that suggests is that you have to have better police coordination, a, a, a more robust plan you can hollow for police coordination, short of invoking the Emergencies Act. Because I said the Emergencies Act to me can only, should only be invoked when you, when stuff is really really bad in terms of potential loss of life. I don't like it seeing be used for excuse for. Other plans that can be put in place to simply uh, think about, you know, how do we better coordinate intelligence sharing and and joint action or parallel action amongst our various levels of police in Canada? It'd be interesting to know if a plan was in place right now, if all of a sudden everything happened all over again, how would we handle it? Well, again, you know, you always learn lessons, right? Yeah. And again, going back to the happy boat, the lesson learned was is that you've got to sort of you got to streamline this policing of, of Parliament Hill because you had the three jurisdictions abutting each other. Literally, like one centimeter away, you had a different jurisdiction. Yeah. I, whenever something bad happens, I'm hoping that people say, "Okay, what went well? Uh, what didn't go well, and what can we improve?" So let's let's take those as a lessons to implement, rather than saying, "Yes, we're going to use this inquiry to justify the Trudeau government's invocation of." Let's, let's face it; it's a very draconian piece of legislation that that, that you know has very serious consequences for for charter freedoms. And at this point, does it look like to you, have you seen anything that says it meets the bar of declaring emergency act a, a threat to national security? 100%. I mean, it's not over. It's not over yet. But from what I know, you've seen, I mean, you never say never. Right. I worked yeah. in intelligence for 32 years. I know. Um, no, I'd be surprised if I say anything unless there's a there's a trump card that no sorry I shouldn't use the word trump card an ace <laughs> up your sleeve that you haven't played yet. I uh, hope it's not the trump card, but um, I, I would be surprised at that. I I I don't see that happening. And um, you know the mayor of Coots said these guys were domestic terrorists. Look, if these guys were many things in January and February, they were not domestic terrorists. And when you start throwing the T word around, people say, oh well, if they're terrorists, ergo you have to invoke the Emergencies Act. Well, a they weren't terrorists. B, there was no real serious threat of violence from what I saw, and 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 ergo that the act is not warranted. So we're going to see Scott, I guess, in the in the remaining days, if if you know this this bombshell of information falls on the second last day or at the eleventh hour, I'd be surprised if it did. So my verdict right now, I'm you know not 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 casting a verdict yet, but so far I'm leaning very heavily against that this was not justified in use. Phil Gursky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow at the University of Ottawa's National Security Program, former CSIS analyst. Uh, as always, Phil, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, sir. Take care. We're told behind the scenes that Trump started fuming. This is a word we've used a lot in our coverage with former President Trump, that he's fuming, that he's mad about the results, that he's mad about something, he's mad about what a certain aide has done. Uh, but look, this was different in the sense that the aides didn't want to be around him. They knew that this was going very poorly. And of course, this was a night they expected a, a big red wave, one that they didn't get. One Trump advisor told me, quote, this is a sinking ship. Will he 
decide not to run, maybe. But at the same time, other people I've talked to say, look, he's been doing this for almost two years now. We're talking about this big announcement of a run. But the reality is that ever since he left the White House, he's been holding these rallies, acting as a candidate. He's just too far, as some people say, his advisors, he's too far down the road to back out now. Obviously, the midterms uh, behind the U.S., sort of, uh, the ones they got the results for anyway. Uh, and it seems the Democrats have uh, held on a little stronger than they thought they would. And the Republican uh, wave, which was uh, obviously uh, being fueled by Donald Trump, didn't mount to as much as everyone thought. Uh, where does that leave things now, especially when Donald Trump was teasing everybody just a few days ago that a big announcement was coming uh, next week? Now it looks like that has been pushed off uh, for whatever reason. Let's ask Brian J. Cram, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, the Washington diplomat and host of Just Ask the Question podcast and author of the new book, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian, how are you today? Doing pretty good, Scott. How are you doing? So, so far, so good. So uh, the, we were joking prior to the midterms that uh, Donald Trump was teasing. I'm kind of maybe sort of thinking of uh, running and such. Now it seems that uh, that initial announcement, which supposed was, was supposed to come next week, has been pushed off. How does what happened in the midterms change the trajectory of Donald Trump, or does it? <laughs> well, the trajectory is the same. He's just aimed the weapon at his own head. Uh, that's uh, look putting it off. If he was going to announce next week and he's putting it off, uh, good Mazel Tov. It, it probably needed to be done. The simple fact of the matter is, I still don't believe that Donald Trump will ever run for president. I, I don't think he'll be on the ballot in 2024. I'll put it that way. Maybe he'll run for six weeks. He'll quit. Maybe he won't run. I don't know. It's all a grift. But at the end of the day, he doesn't want to go back into the White House any more than anybody wants him in the White House. He just wants your money, folks, and he's going to do whatever he can to get it. And so listen up and send him his $45. He's still sending out letters today, emails to his supporters saying, hey, sign up for this raffle, just $45. And if you win it, you'll be the first person to meet me at my important you know, announcement whenever it comes. Nobody ever gets to meet him. Nobody ever gets who knows who puts in for the money. It's just a grift. Everything uh, a man does. It's it's all about raising funds uh, for himself. Uh, we're reports. We played the report that he is furious about this. Is he f- furious? Uh, any inside word? Uh, is well, he realizing <laughs> that he's perhaps lost the power he once had? I can happily say, Scott, that I do not have direct access to Donald Trump, <laughs> so I can't tell you whether he was furious or not. I know that others around him have reported him as such. And, you know, again, good for them. They're there. We're not. We're all better for it. <laughs> uh, Republicans now, is this the is this the the benchmark they needed to move on from uh, the wrath of Donald Trump? Is this is, is this what they've needed to to finally break free? Oh, I think some have broken. Some broke free already uh, and left the Republican Party. You know, like Joe Walsh, who ran against him and he left. And, you know, um, <laughs> the Lincoln Project, all those people left. So, you know, he drove people off early and he drove them off. And, and all that's left is, uh, as the president now says, Biden, a minority of people who are uh, MAGA supporters and they're not the majority of the Republican Party. So 
in his own form and fashion, the current president has tried to bolster the uh, the traditional Republican Party. So, yeah, I think with all that's been done and said, I, I've been saying this for a while and I'll, I'll reiterate it. I, I didn't believe that there was going to be a red wave. And I do believe that Donald Trump is done. Where does that leave Biden? Uh, they seem to be claiming victory that there was no uh, wave, that they weren't swamped. So where does that leave them now moving forward? Well, the Democrats are giddy. They were scared. They were going to lose yeah. you know, a lot of seats. So they're, they're going, wow, maybe we do actually have something that the public wants if we only knew how to sell it. Because it really stinks that in this country you have one party that is loathsome in the entire in its entirety is anti the constitution is seditious and traitorous and you've got another party that party that's barely good enough to beat them so where's that it really kind of scares me when it comes to politics in this country so is it really what the public wants or is it what they don't want don't want that guy so okay we'll put up with this yeah, I think, yeah, but that's the whole problem. You you touched it. That's exactly it. it. They want the lesser of two evils. At the end of the day, if you pick the lesser of two evils, you're still picking evil. So, you know, it, we, it'd be nice if we aimed a little higher in this country, you know, barely being better than Donald Trump. Well, geez, you know, I've, I've got a my pet dog is better than Donald Trump. It would be nice if we actually, you know, aspired to something a little grander along the lines of, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I know. I know. I'm just I, I'm just Pollyanna, but <laughs> it would be nice. Uh, Florida governor obviously had great success. What does he mean for the Republican Party moving forward? Is he their next guy? He, he, he's competent fascism. Yeah, he probably will be the next guy or wants to be. But I think Adam Kinsinger uh, and Liz Cheney will have something to say about that. I think Ron DeSantis, the president said in his press conference yesterday, there would be nothing funner than watching uh, Donald Trump and uh, and Ron DeSantis beat each other up. It, it would be entertaining. Uh, but I think it's Liz Cheney and Adam Kinsinger, if they're capable, they're already sending out emails and, and exploring their options within the Republican Party. So if the Republican Party, if the president is successful in helping the Republican Party, if the Republican Party salvages itself, it's not Ron DeSantis that would be the new face of the Republican hmm. Party. It would be something the Democrats truly wouldn't want to see, and that's Liz Cheney and Adam Kinsinger, because they're what? competent. What do you think Liz Cheney's chances are? Well, she could win a she could win a a general election, but she could never get out of the Republican Party to be the uh, representative of the Republican Party. Hmm. Interesting point. Uh, Biden. Uh, many thought that he wouldn't finish the first term here, his first term here, and that the VP would take over. Yet he seems set on running again. Well, the only way that there's only two ways that 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 would happen one is if he had passed or or if he had resigned hmm. so i don't think anybody really thought that he would resign so i guess you're referring to the fact that some people thought he croaked because he's 79 but he's still he's still hanging in there and so, so uh, i think he said he has an intent to run for a second uh, term 
Um, it will be interesting to see whether or not he does. He says he wants a week off before he makes a final decision that he'll let us know about probably in the first weeks of uh, 2023. So I think he wants to sit back and kind of assess things before he decides what he's going to do. If he doesn't run, that opens the door wide open. I know many would uh, would believe that Kamala Harris would be the front runner, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. Hmm. We'll, we'd have to wait and see. The fun continues. Brian J. Karam, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, and the Washington diplomat. Brian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, my brother. Anytime. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, and you can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. Scott, how are you? I'm doing so far uh, so good. So that's, uh, yeah, that's a good thing. So anyway, I wanted to ask you about issues in regard to masking. We were, you know, we've, we've touched on this for, uh, you know, since uh, the, the global pandemic started and such. There's now uh, chatter going around that we, you know, some people think we should be remasking or, or masking up again. Uh, there was a survey the other day saying, if you had to, if the doctor said to, would you do this? And of course we would. We just did it. Um, but then as you drill down on more of this, we're not masking up because there's a deadly variant of COVID-19. It's not because we have to protect uh, ourselves. It's because we have to protect the healthcare system. So uh, the, the, the influx of flu and such that we're seeing is a result of, and I've had epidemiologists on saying this, we've been masked up for uh, two and a half years. Now there are, uh, the masks are off. There's no immunity. We haven't built that up yet. So you're seeing more cases and such. Uh, and therefore, per- perhaps the need to remask. But the, ma- the the reason to mask up again is not to save us from COVID-19. It's to save the healthcare system. Is that enough? Will will that will will people jump on board, or will this hopefully refocus and make us aware that we're doing this to save our healthcare system, which obviously is not as good as we think it is? What do you think about these two different angles of the reason for masking? Well, first thing. Um I didn't know you could hack into computers, but since you know what my first topic is today, congratulations. So that's, uh, that's, that's good for you. Um, that's coming up at uh, a little after six for people who want to know. So, um, beauty, so, we'll continue this on. So, uh, a couple things. First of all, a number, well, a year ago, year and a half ago, maybe, it was something that I talked about on the show with, I can't remember who it was, and I said, look, the, the, if people remember last year and the year before... We had COVID going on, but the number of cases of the flu in Canada were essentially zero. And I mean, I'm not being hyperbolic. I mean, literally it was almost zero cases of the flu. There may have been cases out there, but we're talking cases of the flu that were enough to be documented because people went to the hospital with it. And the question I asked at that time is, if we're seeing no cases of the flu, are we going to see experts saying well, if you're wearing masks and social distancing and washing your hands all the time, and this is leading to no flu, are we going to see these experts saying, we got to keep doing this once COVID is gone? Because look, look how effective it is. The problem, Scott, is, as you say, uh, twofold. One, 
I don't know that people want to be doing this anymore. I think they did it out of a sense of duty and out of a sense of responsibility. And because generally Canadians listen to authority figures, generally, and when people who are in charge tell us to do something, generally we do it. I don't know, though, that if this is not a life and death situation where you're concerned for your own health, that people are going to be buying into this. And the second thing, and you just alluded to it, and that is, well, our immunity is down. Okay. Yeah. Well, is, does that not mean in a weird kind of way that maybe we all need to get our immunity back up? And if that means we get a case of the cold yes. or the flu, because yes. otherwise, yes. otherwise, are we not announcing that this will be masks forever? If and if you get it, it, and if you get some, and if you get a common cold, it'll wipe you right out. Yeah, because so there's, no immu- there's no immunity built up. And so what are the shots that we've been taking and the boosters designed to do to build our immunity? So why are we saying then that we want to build immunity against one thing, but we want you to have no immunity against another thing? It doesn't make any yeah. sense. Now, yeah. I don't, and look, I understand that the flu can be terrible in seniors' homes and places like this where you have compromised uh, health situations. I understand. It's yeah, not something you're to be joking yeah. with. But for, I would suggest that I'm not the immunologist, someone else who's an expert would say it, but I would say 95% of the population, the flu is a pain, it's unpleasant, but it's not going to kill you. But I wonder, I really do wonder if we go out of our way to prevent anybody from getting the flu for years and years and years, does it become something that then really does start to wipe people out because they have no way to fight it? Does this direct more attention to our failing healthcare system? Of course. Uh, because again, we have to go through this, but we're not doing it to save our lives. We're doing it to save the poor health system. So again, that seems to have been subsided. You get some stories about it, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of real uh, ambition to fix this. Does this refocus the public's attention on we're masking, not to save each other, but to stop our hospital system from collapsing? That is absolutely nuts. Of course it does. Of course it does, if that's the reason behind it. And and you know what? Masking, Scott, is only going to be the first step on this ladder because if we're saying that the healthcare system cannot deal with what with a surge in respiratory cases, and if we're saying we can't allow the flu, what happens when instead of saying we are now insisting that you wear a mask, if the powers that be came out and said, we are now insisting we're going to go back to those days when you had to carry around a document saying that you got your shot. What if we say you must now have a booster or two boosters? People have done it. Yeah. They're not sure now. I, a lot of people, Scott, got their needles but are not sure about it. And I, I know that some people, anti-vaxxers, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who had it. Yep but are now saying, I don't know how many of these I want to get. I did what I had to do. If all of a sudden now they say, well, now you have to have two more boosters. Now you're starting to get into something else where I think people are going to really say, hold on, back off here. I did what I had to do. I'm not worried for myself. You do what you need to do with the healthcare system, but don't tell me I have to get more stuff into me or don't tell me I have to wear a mask everywhere every time I go out to eat. I think that's exactly what you're going to start to see is uh, we'll do it for the right reasons. We're not doing it just because we're neglecting our health care system. And hopefully this will put the attention on the health care system and get it. The, it's the, supposed uh, to be about the urgency, not convenience. 
Good point. All right. Uh, thank you, Scott. As always, Scott Radley Show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Have a great one. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Hey, Scott, it's Tim. If striking because contractors can do your job cheaper is good negotiation than me taking my ball and going home back in grade two, should qualify me as a union leader. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.